Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Essex Church, home of this gathered community known as Kensington Unitarians. A particular welcome to anyone who's joining us for the first time today. We're very glad to have you with us. And a welcome to everyone that comes again and again for whom this is your spiritual home. For anyone who doesn't know me, my name is Jane Blackhall. I've been here for about 18 years now. I work here as outreach officer doing bits and bobs of this and that. Our Minister Sarah is away this weekend, so I'll be leading the service this morning. Our opening words are by Patricia Sheldon. Here is where we gather in the presence of the sacred. Here is where we gather to experience the holy. Here is where together we face the unanswerable questions and acknowledge that not knowing is as sublime as it is frustrating. Here is where we unite in the midst of life and all the glories and the suffering it can hold, knowing that both are ever present. Here is where we ask, risk, think, discuss, ponder and offer what might not be welcomed or even acceptable somewhere else. Here is where, if we allow it, we are deeply moved. Here is where we encounter one another in deep and powerful ways. Ways that surprise us, yet without which we would not survive. Here we gather to worship, to experience something happening, perhaps something different for each of us according to our beliefs, something unnamed, uncategorised, unusual, yet absolutely necessary. Here we are so gathered, our minds, our hearts and our souls. And so our worship begins. I'm going to light our chalice flame, this sacred symbol which connects us with Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists the world over, those who came before us and those who will follow. May God, the mind that sees our faults, the tears that sting our wounds, the laugh that soothes our aches and the love that redeems us all, be illuminated by the light we kindle in this house of faith. And let's take those joys and concerns into an extended time of prayer and reflection. This prayer is an expanded one uh, based on words by the Unitarian Universalist Minister Katie Kandarian Morris. You might want to put down what you're holding and get yourself into a, a settled place ready for us to pray together. God of many names, the personal and mysterious, we have come to a quiet time, an interior place, a place for deepening of spirit and enrichment of soul. We seek to know ourselves by knowing you. Let us have the courage to sit in the unknowing, to search for answers, even if we find our questions seem unanswerable. Let us be willing to be authentic with ourselves and to be ready to bring our true face to the world. Let us be willing to know others by truly welcoming their genuine features, open-heartedly welcoming them into the world 
by appreciating the beauty that comes from seeing wholeness and truth. And in the quiet of this shared hour, may each person find what they most need. And may each person offer whatever they can in caring for another, in service of the higher good. May the troubled find peace. May the confused find insight. May the downhearted find comfort. May the lonely find a sense of companionship. And may the strong find moments of challenge, learning and growth. As we look back over the past week, let us silently give thanks for those joys and pleasures that we've known along the way. Moments of love, friendship and connection. Experiences of delight and wonder, relief and reassurance. Bursts of playfulness, spontaneity and generosity. Feelings of achievement, creativity and flow. All those times when we felt most alive and awake. And let's also ask silently for the consolation, forgiveness or guidance we may need as we acknowledge our sorrows and regrets. Those times of loss and pain, frustration, anger and fear. Periods of uncertainty and anxious waiting. Realisation of our own weaknesses, mistakes and failings. Awareness of missed opportunities, things left unsaid or undone. All those moments where we struggled or felt like a mess. And expanding our circle of concern, let us bring to mind all those people, places and situations who are in need of prayer right now, whether they're close to home or around the world, issues that may be small or overwhelming. Nonetheless, let's hold them in the light. And let's just sit for a brief moment together in the quiet depths we have co-created. God of all love, we offer up our joys and concerns, our hopes and our fears, our beauty and our brokenness, and we call on you for insight, healing and renewal. As we look forward to the coming week, help us live well each day and be our best selves, using our unique gifts in the service of love, justice and peace. Amen. is The Unproven God by Robert Walsh. There's an Oxford philosophy professor who says he is determined by sheer logic and mathematics that God probably exists. While Dr Richard Swinburne says he's not 100% sure about this, 
He claims to have demonstrated through probability theory and complex mathematical formulas that God's existence is more likely to be true than not. The God he is trying to prove is a familiar one, and in some respects reassuring. This God is a person, and he loves beauty, goodness, freedom, order, morality, and human beings. Haven't we always hoped that God would turn out to be like the good side of us, only more powerful? It seems bold of me to say this about a professor at Oxford, but I'm willing to state with confidence that Dr. Swinburne's calculations are pure hokum. Complete balderdash. He thinks God is a problem to be solved. He doesn't get it that God is a mystery and is always and forever beyond every mortal attempt to figure out God out and settle God once and for all. God cannot be proved nor disproved. If you can prove it, then it's not God. It's something less than God. Live in the world. Experience its joys and its pain. Try to find the path through, through it that is right for you. Listen carefully to the voices around you, the voices within you, and the voices from the past. You may, you may come to know that there is a mystery animating the creation and you. A creating, transforming, sustaining mystery, or you may not. If you do, you may choose to give it a name. You may call it God, or you may not. But don't waste any of your precious time trying to prove it. This is a reading called If I Were Asked by Victoria Safford. If I were asked to confess my faith or my beliefs out loud, and I were scrambling from some place to begin, I would start in the desert, in the lonesome valley, and say that first of all, and ultimately, we are alone. No God abides with us, caring, watching, mindful of our going out and coming in. The only certainty is mystery. We are alone, and because we are alone, it is the chance connections, both chosen and involuntary, that matter most of all, and ultimately help heal and hold us. We are alone, yet intricately bound, inextricably connected to soil and steam and forest, to sun and corn and melting snow. We are alone yet bound by stories we cannot get out of to ancestors and descendants we will never meet. And all these natural conditions, these bonds we do not forge ourselves and yet cannot deny, are the strands of theology, the seeds of faith, the beginning of religion of binding all things. When I say God, and sometimes I do, because sometimes there is no other metaphor, no other symbol, no other poetry, no other offering. When I say God, I mean that place of meeting, that place where solitudes join. The space between my hand and that dogwood the space where the tiny feet of the ant brushed the dirt beneath her. The space between Mercury and Venus. 
between electrons, which we unblinkingly believe in without seeing. God is the space in between, the bridge between solitudes, the ground where we meet, you and I, or any two, by grace. If I were asked, I'd say that all of us, together, are alone. And the emptiness between us is waiting to be filled. to a time of meditation so once again you might need to put down anything you're holding make yourself comfortable you might want to close your eyes or focus on the candles in the centre I'm going to read some words adapted from a piece by Victoria Weinstein to take us into some, some shared stillness and then we'll have a good few moments of silence which I'll bring to a close with the sounding of a bell Divinity is our birthright. It comes with our very existence. God nods to God from behind each of us. But let's remember, as Emerson said, divinity is behind our failures and our follies also. In the silence that follows, let us pray that we may notice and accept the divinity of tiny things, the divine in ordinary miracles, even in the awkward mistakes, in frivolous conversations with our friends, in wordless companionship with a loved one, in the work that seems futile one day but resonates with meaning the next, in the shared meal and the shopping list, in the peaceful sleep, in the simple progression of these autumn days. We pray this moment to keep tender vigil over our precious, imperfect lives. To know each one as a vessel, however cracked or broken, of the holy. So may we strive to recognise the indwelling presence of God in all, in all living things, and even in ourselves.
in the silence, may we open our hearts. So it's up to me once again on the first Sunday of the month to kick off our next theme. Throughout November we're going to look at the unknown and today in particular we're focusing on the concept of God, the idea that God is in some sense unknown and ultimately unknowable, that God is so unlike anything else we humans have experienced or gained knowledge of, so utterly beyond the limits of what we can understand that we can never really grasp to know what it is we mean by God. On this view, it could be said that when we speak of God, as we do most weeks of church, at church, we literally do not know what we are talking about. None of us, and certainly not me. That's not an especially reassuring thought to be bringing you from the pulpit, but there it is. As the UU minister Robert Walsh put it in the reading that Anthony gave for us earlier, God is a mystery, a creating, transforming, sustaining mystery and is always and forever beyond every mortal attempt to figure out God and settle God once and for all. And yet, as Victoria Safford wrote in the second reading that Sonia gave for us, she and we still use God language because sometimes there is no other metaphor, no other symbol, no other poetry, no other offering. There's something in us that draws us regardless towards religious language to try and talk about the deeper things of life to speak of things we still don't fully understand. So what are we talking about when we talk about God? Well, it depends. It seems that some people are fairly straightforwardly talking about a supernatural being of some sort. Not exactly the old man with a beard in the sky that we think of from childlike caricatures, not generally, but some sort of supernatural person, a cosmic mind perhaps, out there somewhere. However, many of us don't believe in a supernatural being of that sort, not exactly, so we use religious language more symbolically, perhaps to refer to some underlying metaphysical reality, something a bit more nebulous that we acknowledge is harder to grasp. And a third possibility is that when we talk about God, we're playing some sort of sophisticated language game. We're not really talking about objective reality at all, whether that's a supernatural being or an underlying metaphysical reality, 
Instead, we might be using God talk as part of a whole system of religious language, religious rituals and community, which sort of affirms our commitment to some values that we hold in common, these shared values and this shared outlook on life. When we talk about God, it is not always obvious which of these ways of speaking we're engaging in. Are we being literal and directly talking about a supernatural being? Are we being symbolic and speaking metaphorically about some underlying cosmic reality? Are we playing some non-realist language game, which has got nothing to do with either a supernatural being or an underlying reality, but instead is about some moral support? Now, it's possible that as individuals and as a community, we are doing any or all of these things at any given moment, switching between them from time to time. And I suspect, for many of us, we're not always clear about what we're doing ourselves. In fact, this, this whole thing was a large part of my recent dissertation, so I spent months and months thinking about this and talking to other people about this, and I'm still not sure what I'm doing when I talk about God. So, perhaps it will be something of a comfort to you as well as me to know that we're in good company. Good and faithful religious people of all stripes have been struggling with such questions forever, and there is one reasonably reputable strand of theology that may be useful for us to reflect on today. Apophatic theology, A-P-O-P-H-A-T-I-C. Apophatic theology, sometimes also known as, known as negative theology or the via negativa, can be traced back through Christian history to the fathers of the early church, through key thinkers, thinkers such as the marvellously named Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. <laughs> I've got a whole aside about his name, but I'm going to, we'll do that over coffee. Um, Apophatic theology is particularly connected to the mystics, uh, notably Meister Eckhart, St John of the Cross. Uh, there are also a number of Jewish and Sufi mystics who were thinking along similar lines, including our old friend Maimonides, who was mentioned a few weeks back and was in the latest newsletter with David Talbot. Um, some people also include the likes of uh, Rumi and Hafiz, the Sufi poets, under the same umbrella. I need a drink of water before I start saying what apophatic theology is. Um, apparently the root of the word apophatic is apophosis. That originally meant denial. So there's our first clue. Apophatic theology attempts to speak of God only in terms of what cannot be said about God. Um, and that's probably enough to give you the hint that apophatic theology is parad paradoxical through and through. Uh, the words on the front of your order of service today from William Frank sum it up nicely in one mind-bending phrase. Only the unsaying of language can say what cannot be said. Only the unsaying of language can say what cannot be said. And I'll come back to that idea of unsaying a bit later, later on. Megan Foley, a Unitarian Universalist minister, has her own particular take on apophatic theology, which might be more accessible to us. She says... There's no shortage of voices shouting out about what they think God is. And it's important for people who are spiritually curious to be able to articulate what they are sure God is not while they're on their way to finding out what God might be so that they don't get unduly misguided or hurt by all that's already out there. It can't all be true. And I'm not the first to declare it no, um, important to know what God is not. The tradition goes way back and was particularly notable in the 9th century when theologian John Scotus Eriugena, who I think was a fan of Pseudo-Dionysius, the Areopagite, um, he made this statement, and please excuse the gendered language, remember he was writing 1,200 years ago or something like that. Um, he said, we do not know what God is. God himself does not know what he is because he is not anything. 
Literally, God is not because he transcends being. The UU minister, Megan Foley, continues with her interpretation of this saying. She says, I translate that to say that a creator God is bigger than creation itself, also bigger than anything any human can understand or describe. God is not definable by any human conception, and therefore no human language can capture what God is. Kind of mind-boggling, isn't it? It blows my mind that back in the day this was more than a mental exercise. A theology was born to describe God in terms of what God cannot possibly be what God is not, so as to help people that understand that when we're talking about God, we're talking about something really outside the ordinary. And that theology was called apophatic theology. That's the words by Megan Foley. There there are several uh, interpretations of how apophatic theology works. They're all confusing, but this is my favourite. And I think this is one that you can actually adopt as as a life principle, Um, That might make more sense when we get to the end of it. The version that I'm going to tell you about is the work of the Professor Michael Sells. He's a professor of Islamic history and literature at the Divinity School in uh, Chicago. He wrote a book called The Mystical Languages of Unsaying. Um, This might need you to commit a few extra brain cells, but even even with your best efforts, it's meant to be confusing. He says that apophatic theology is a never-ending dialectical process. That is, every time you try to say something about God, you must immediately unsay what you've just said. It's a sort of correction that never ends. Um, What with God being unknowable and all that, whatever we might say about God is going to be a bit wrong, or a lot wrong, um, utterly inadequate at least, even if it's our very best effort at pronouncing theological wisdom, and even if it's built on the entire history of the church. But it doesn't stop there. Once you've said something, and then you've unsaid it, you then have to unsay the thing you've just unsaid as well, and then unsay that. It goes on forever. It's not as if you're going to arrive at a final destination where you've got a neat and tidy conclusion and you know what God is. That's not what it's about. It's nothing like other modes of theological and philosophical reflection, and that's why it's often been associated with the mystics. Going through this process of unsaying is somehow supposed to disrupt your ordinary ways of thinking and have some sort of mystical transformative effect. Mark McIntosh, a writer on Christian spirituality, has said this. Apophatic speech might take the form of a quietening down a stilling into hushed silence, but it might also take the form of an explosion of speech, a carnival of self-subverting discourse, language tripping over itself in paradox or fantastical repetition as it comes undone in the whirlwind of divine superabundance. That's why the mystics like it. And if you've read some of the mystics, like the uh, sermons of Meister Eckhart, uh, you'll get a sense of that. Apparently he had a kind of apophatic formula for his sermons. It sounds like they were very long. You get off very lightly here. Um, He'd start out with something uncontroversial, maybe a well-known Bible verse. For example, in his 87th sermon, he begins with the quotation, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This opening gambit would have been well-known to his congregation. It would have put them at ease. You might say it lulled them into a false sense of security. as soon as he'd said that, he would unsay it. He would, start, he would start talking about how poor, in this sense, blessed are the poor, didn't mean a lack of material wealth, but instead a sort of internal poverty of, he said, wanting, having, and knowing nothing. 
That's his first unsaying. He's telling his listeners, aha, it didn't mean what you thought it meant. But then he unsays that too, of course, saying, aha, but it doesn't mean internal poverty in the way you think either. And he goes on and on and on, forever unsaying what he just said. And the sermon kind of gets stranger and falls apart. At one point, he famously cries out, let us pray to God that we may be free of God, which was obviously terribly controversial at the time. And while it kind of makes sense in context, it's no wonder that he got in trouble with the Pope in the end. Um, It also becomes a a kind of mystical frenzy of contradiction and provocation. And I think the idea is that instead of trying to reason with his congregation, um, this process of unsaying is trying to evoke some direct experience within them. It's beyond reason, and it pushes them towards their own mystical encounters with God. Now, what, what does this mean to us? There might be a temptation for people, including us Unitarians, to settle for a certain theological understanding, a certain model of God, especially if we've worked hard to get our head around it. And once we think we've got there, to dig in and defend our theological position, the one that we find appealing or convincing right now. But the message of apathetic theology is to insist that we never just settle, that we stay conscious of our unknowing. We keep the big questions alive and we avoid settling for easy answers. Whatever you might say about God, it can't be the final word. We cannot grasp the ungraspable. But you might just say that through this never-ending dynamic, this dialectical process, this endless course correction, we can perhaps better stumble in a zigzagging path towards God. Whatever our current theological understanding, collectively or as individuals, I think we can benefit from this insight, this process of unsaying, even if it only means we put a little asterisk next to any theological pronouncement we say. To remind ourselves, as the theologian Keith Ward puts it, God is beyond all human concepts. The most that they can do is point inadequately towards God. And I want to close with an echo of today's opening words by Patricia Sheldon, which I think affirm the apophatic aspect of what it is we already do together here each week. She said, Here is where we gather in the presence of the sacred. Here is where we gather to experience the holy. Here is where together we face the unanswerable questions and acknowledge that not knowing is as sublime as it is frustrating. Here we gather to worship, to experience something happening, perhaps something different for each of us according to our beliefs, something unnamed, uncategorised and unusual, yet absolutely necessary. Here we are so gathered, our minds, our hearts, our souls. May it always be so. Amen. If you are who you were, And if the person next to you is who they were, if none of us has changed since the day we first came into this place, in a sense we've failed. For the purpose of this religious community, of any church, temple or mosque, is to help its people thrive and grow. We do this through encounters with the unknown. The unknown in ourselves, in another, in the other, in God whoever or whatever that might be for us, however hard that might be, because these encounters have very many gifts to offer. So may you go forth from here this morning, not who you were, but who you could be. Go forth with courage and in peace to meet the days to come. Amen.